Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Eniash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. For those of you wondering about last week's announcement, I said yes. Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing International News Headlines of April 7th, 1992 Toronto Magical Tribune Entire British Wizengamot reports seeing Boy Who Lived Frighten a Dementor Expert on Magical Creatures Now you're just lying! France, Germany, accuse Britain of making the whole thing up New Zealand Spellcrafters Diurnal Notice What drove British legislature insane? Could our government be next? Experts list top 28 reasons to believe it's already happened. American Mage Werewolf clan to become first inhabitants of Wyoming. The Quibbler Malfoy flees Hogwarts as Vila powers awaken. Daily Prophet Legal tricks free mad muggle-born as Potter threatens ministry with attack on Azkaban. Hypothesis, Voldemort April 8, 1992, 7.22 p.m. The four of them gathered once more around the ancient desk of the headmaster of Hogwarts, with its drawers within drawers within drawers, wherein all the past paperwork of the Hogwarts school was stored. Legend had it that headmistress Shella had once gotten lost in that desk, and was, in fact, still there and wouldn't be let out again until she got her files organized. Minerva didn't particularly look forward to inheriting those drawers when she inherited that desk someday, if any of them survived. Albus Dumbledore was seated behind his desk, looking grave and composed. Severus Snape was standing next to the dead flu and its ashes, hovering ominously like the vampire that students sometimes accused him of pretending to be. Mad-Eye Moody had been meant to join them, but was yet to arrive. And Harry, a boy's small, thin frame, perched on the arm of his chair as though the energies running through him were too great to allow ordinary seating. Face set, sweaty hair, intent green eyes. And within it all, the jagged lightning bolt of his never-healing scar. He seemed grimmer, now, even compared to a single week earlier. For a moment, Minerva flashed back to her trip to Diagon Alley with Harry, what seemed like ages and ages ago. There'd been this somber boy inside that Harry, somehow, even then. This wasn't entirely her own fault, or Albus's fault. And yet, there was something almost unbearably sad about the contrast between the young boy she'd first met and what magical Britain had made of him. Harry had never had much of an ordinary childhood she'd gathered. Harry's adoptive parents had said to her that he'd spoken little and played less with muggle children. It was painful to think that Harry might have had only a few months of playing beside the other children in Hogwarts before the war's demands had stripped it all away. Maybe there was another face that Harry showed to the children his own age when he wasn't staring down the wizengamot but she couldn't stop herself from imagining Harry Potter's childhood as a heap of firewood, 
and herself and Albus feeding the wooden branches, piece by piece, into the flames. Prophecies are strange things, said Albus Dumbledore. The old wizard's eyes were half-lidded, as though in weariness. Vague, unclear, meaning escaping like water held between loose fingers. Prophecy is ever a burden, for there are no answers there, only questions. Harry Potter was sitting tensely. Headmaster Dumbledore, my friends are being targeted. Hermione Granger almost went to Azkaban. The war has begun, as you put it. Professor Trelawney's prophecy is key information for weighing up the balance of my hypotheses about what's going on. Not to mention how silly it is, and dangerous, that the Dark Lord knows the prophecy, and I don't. Albus looked a grim question at her, and she shook her head in reply. In whatever unimaginable way Harry had discovered that Trelawney had made the prophecy, and that the Dark Lord knew of it, he hadn't learned that much from her. Voldemort, seeking to avert that very prophecy, went to his defeat at your hands. His knowledge brought him only harm. Ponder that carefully, Harry Potter. Yes, Headmaster, I do understand that. My home culture also has a literary tradition of self-fulfilling and misinterpreted prophecies. I'll interpret with caution, rest assured but I've already guessed quite a bit. Is it safer for me to work from partial guesses? Time passed. Minerva, if you would. The one... She began. The words came falteringly to her throat. She was no actress. She couldn't imitate the deep, chilling tone of the original prophecy. And yet somehow, that tone seemed to carry all the meaning. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies. And the Dark Lord shall mark him as his equal, came Severus's voice, making her jump within her chair. The potions master loomed tall by the fireplace. But he shall have power the Dark Lord knows not, and either must destroy all but a remnant of the other. For those two different spirits cannot exist in the same world. That last line, Severus spoke with so much foreboding that it chilled her bones. It was almost like listening to Sybil Trelawney. Harry was listening with a frown. Can you repeat that? The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches, born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month. Actually, hold on. Can you write that down? I need to analyze this carefully. This was done with both Albus and Severus watching the parchment hawk-like, as though to make sure that no unseen hand reached in and snatched the precious information away. Let's see. I'm male and born on July 31st. Check. I did in fact vanquish the Dark Lord. Check. Ambiguous pronoun in line two, but I wasn't born yet, so it's hard to see how my parents could have thrice defied me. This scar is an obvious candidate for the mark. Harry touched his forehead. Then there's the power the Dark Lord knows not, which probably refers to my scientific background. No. Harry looked up at the potions master in surprise. Severus's eyes were closed, his face tightened in concentration. 
The Dark Lord could obtain that power by studying the same books as you, Potter. But the prophecy did not say, power the Dark Lord has not, nor even power the Dark Lord cannot have. She spoke of power the Dark Lord knows not. It would be something stranger to him than muggle artifacts. Something, perhaps, that he could not comprehend at all, even having seen it. Science is not a bag of technological tricks. It's not just the muggle version of a wand. It's not even knowledge like memorizing the periodic table. It's a different way of thinking. Perhaps, the potions master murmured, but his voice was skeptical. It is hazardous to read too far into prophecy, even if you have heard it yourself. They are things of exceeding frustration. So I see. His hand rose up, rubbed the scar on his forehead. But, okay, if this is really all we know... Look, I'll just put it bluntly. How do you know that the Dark Lord actually survived? What? Albus just sighed and leaned back in the vast headmaster's chair. Well, imagine how this prophecy sounded back when it was made. You know who learns the prophecy, and it sounds like I'm destined to grow up and overthrow him. That the two of us are meant to have a final battle where either of us must destroy all but a remnant of the other. So you know who attacks Godric's Hollow and immediately gets vanquished, leaving behind some remnant which may or may not be his disembodied soul. Maybe the Death Eaters are his remnant, or the Dark Mark. This prophecy could already be fulfilled is what I'm saying. Don't get me wrong, I do realize that my interpretation sounds stretched. Trelawney's phrasing doesn't seem natural for describing only the events that historically happened on October 31st, 1981. Attacking a baby and having the spell bounce off isn't something you'd normally call the power to vanquish. But if you think of the prophecy as being about several possible futures, only one of which was actually realized on Halloween, then the prophecy could already be complete. But, but the raid on Azkaban! If the Dark Lord survived, then sure, he's the most likely suspect for the Azkaban breakout. You could even say that the Azkaban breakout is Bayesian evidence for the Dark Lord surviving, because an Azkaban breakout is more likely to happen in worlds where he's alive than worlds where he's dead. But it's not strong Bayesian evidence. It's not something that can't possibly happen unless the Dark Lord is alive. Professor Quarrel, who didn't start from the assumption that you-know-who was still around, had no trouble thinking of his own explanation. To him, it was obvious that some powerful wizard might want Bellatrix Black because she knew a secret of the Dark Lords, like some of his magical knowledge that he'd told only to her. The priors against anyone surviving their body's death are very low, even if it's magically possible. Most times, it doesn't happen. So if it's just the Azkaban breakout, I'd have to say formally that it isn't enough Bayesian evidence. The improbability of the evidence, assuming that the hypothesis is false, is not commensurate with the prior improbability of the hypothesis. No, the prophecy is not yet fulfilled. I would know it if it were. Are you sure of that? Yes, Potter. If the prophecy had already come true, I would understand it. I heard Trelawney's words. I remember Trelawney's voice. And if I knew the events that matched the prophecy, I would recognize them. What has already happened does not fit. The potions master spoke with certainty. I'm not really sure what to do with that statement. 
His hand rose up, absently rubbed at his forehead. Maybe it's just what you think happened that doesn't fit, and the true history is different. Voldemort is alive. There are other indications. Such as? Harry's reply was instant. Albus paused. There are terrible rituals by which wizards have returned from death. That much anyone can discern within history and legend. And yet, those books are missing. I could not find them. It was Voldemort who removed them, I am sure. So you can't find any books on immortality, and that proves that you know who has them? Indeed, there is a certain book, I will not name it aloud, missing from the restricted section of the Hogwarts library. An ancient scroll, which should have been at Borgin and Burke's, with only an empty place on a shelf to show where it was. The old wizard stopped. But I suppose... The old wizard said, as though to himself... You will say that even if Voldemort tried to make himself immortal, it does not prove that he succeeded. Harry sighed. <sighs> Proof, Headmaster? There are only ever probabilities. If there are known particular books on immortality rituals which are missing, that increases the probability that someone attempted one, which in turn raises the prior probability of the Dark Lord surviving his death. This I concede, and thank you for contributing the fact. The question is whether the prior probability goes up enough. Surely, if you concede even a chance that Voldemort survived, that is worth guarding against. Harry inclined his head. As you say, Headmaster, though once a probability drops low enough, it's also an error to go on obsessing about it. Given that books on immortality are missing, and that this prophecy would sound somewhat more natural if it refers to the Dark Lord and I having a future battle, I agree that the Dark Lord being alive is a probability, not just a possibility. But other probabilities must also be taken into account, and in the probable worlds where you know who is not alive, someone else framed Hermione. Foolishness. Utter foolishness. The dark mark has not faded, nor has its master. See, that's what I mean by formally insufficient Bayesian evidence. Sure, it sounds all grim and foreboding and stuff, but is it that unlikely for a magical mark to stay around after the Maker dies? Suppose the mark is certain to continue while the Dark Lord's sentience lives on, but a priori we'd only have guessed a 20% chance of the dark mark continuing to exist after the Dark Lord dies. Then the observation, the Dark Mark has not faded, is five times as likely to occur in worlds where the Dark Lord is alive as in worlds where the Dark Lord is dead. Is that really commensurate with the prior improbability of immortality? Let's say the prior odds were a hundred to one against the Dark Lord surviving. If a hypothesis is a hundred times as likely to be false versus true, and then you see evidence five times more likely if the hypothesis is true versus false, you should update to believing the hypothesis is 20 times as likely to be false as true. Odds of 100 to 1 times a likelihood ratio of 1 to 5 equals odds of 20 to 1 that the Dark Lord is dead. 
Where are you getting all these numbers, Potter? That is the admitted weakness of the method. But what I'm qualitatively getting at is why the observation the Dark Mark has not faded is not adequate support for the hypothesis the Dark Lord is immortal. The evidence isn't as extraordinary as the claim. Not to mention that even if the Dark Lord is alive, he doesn't have to be the one who framed Hermione. As a cunning man once said, there could be more than one plotter and more than one plan. Such is the defense professor, Severus said with a thin smile. I suppose I must agree that he is a suspect. It was the defense professor last year, after all, and the year before that, and the year before that. Harry's eyes dropped back to the parchment in his lap. Let's move on. Are we certain that this prophecy is accurate? Nobody messed with Professor McGonagall's memory, maybe edited or subtracted a line. Albus paused, then spoke slowly. There is a great spell laid over Britain, recording every prophecy said within our borders. Far beneath the most ancient hall of the Wizengamot, in the Department of Mysteries, they are recorded. The Hall of Prophecy, Minerva whispered. She'd read about that place, said to be a great room of shelves filled with glowing orbs, one after another appearing over the years. Merlin himself had wrought it, it was said, the greatest wizard's final slap to the face of fate. Not all prophecies conduced to the good, and Merlin had wished for at least those spoken of in prophecy to know what had been spoken of them. That was the respect Merlin had given to their free will, that destiny might not control them from the outside, unwitting. Those mentioned within a prophecy would have a glowing orb float to their hand, and then hear the prophet's true voice speaking. Others who tried to touch an orb, it was said, would be driven mad, or possibly just have their heads explode. The legends were unclear on this point. Whatever Merlin's original intention, the unspeakables hadn't let anyone enter in centuries, so far as she'd heard. Works of the ancient wizards had stated that later unspeakables had discovered that tipping off the subjects of prophecies could interfere with seers releasing whatever temporal pressures they released and so the heirs of Merlin had sealed his hall. It did occur to Minerva to wonder, now that she'd spent a few months around Mr. Potter, how anyone could possibly know that. But she also knew better than to ask Albus, in case Albus tried to tell her. Minerva firmly believed that you only ought to worry about time if you were a clock. The Hall of Prophecy, Albus confirmed lowly. Those who are spoken of in a prophecy may listen to that prophecy there. Do you see the implication, Harry? Harry frowned. Well, I could listen to it, or the Dark Lord. Oh, my parents! Those who had thrice defied him. They were also mentioned in the prophecy, so they could hear the recording? If James and Lily heard anything different from what Minerva reported, they did not say so to me. You took James and Lily there? Fox can go to many places. Do not mention the fact. Harry was staring directly at Albus. Can I go to this Ministry of Mysteries place and hear the recorded prophecy? The original tone of voice might be helpful from what I've heard. 
Light glinted from the reflection of Albus's half-moon glasses as the old wizard slowly shook his head. I think that would be unwise, for reasons beyond the obvious. It is dangerous, that place which Merlin made, more dangerous to some people than others. I see, Harry said tonelessly and looked back down at the parchment. I'll take the prophecy as assumed accurate for now. The next part says that the Dark Lord has marked me as his equal. Any ideas on what that means exactly? Surely not that you must imitate his ways in any wise. I'm not dumb, Headmaster. Muggles have worked out a thing or two about temporal paradoxes, even if it's all theoretical to them. I won't throw away my ethics just because a signal from the future claims it's going to happen, because then that becomes the only reason why it happened in the first place. Still, what does it mean? I do not know. Nor I. Harry took out his wand, turned it over in his hands, gazing meditatively at the wood. Eleven inches, holly, with a core of phoenix feather. And the phoenix whose tail feather is in this wand only ever gave one other, which Mr... What was his name? Olive something made into the core of the Dark Lord's wand. And I'm a parcel mouth. It seems like a lot of coincidences even then. And now I find out there's a prophecy stating that I'll be the Dark Lord's equal. Severus's eyes were thoughtful, the headmaster's gaze unreadable. Could it be that you-know-who, that Voldemort, transferred some of his own powers to Mr. Potter the night he gave him that scar? Not something he intended to do, surely. Still, I don't see how Mr. Potter could be his equal if he had any less magic than the Dark Lord himself. Meh, said Harry, still looking meditatively at his wand. I'd fight the Dark Lord without any magic at all if I had to. Homo sapiens didn't become the dominant species on this planet by having the sharpest claws or hardest armor. Though I suppose some of that point may be lost on wizards. Still, it's beneath my dignity as a human being to be scared of anything that isn't smarter than I am. And from what I've heard, on that particular dimension, the Dark Lord wasn't very scary. The potions master spoke, his voice taking on some of his customary contemptuous drawl. You imagine yourself more intelligent than the Dark Lord, Potter? Yes, in fact, said Harry, pulling back the left sleeve of his robes and rolling up the shirt sleeve beneath to expose the bare elbow. Oh, that reminds me. Let's make sure nobody here has the clearly visible tattoo in the standard, easily checkable location, which would mark them as a secret enemy spy. Albus made a quieting gesture that halted the potions master before he could say anything scathing. Tell me, Harry, how would you have crafted the dark mark? Non-standard locations, not easily found without embarrassment and fuss. Though, of course, any security-conscious person would check anyway. Make it smaller, if possible. Overlay another non-magical tattoo to obscure the exact shape. Better yet, cover it with a layer of fake skin. Cunning indeed. But tell me, suppose you could craft any conditions you wished into the mark, fading it or raising it as you wished. What would you do then? Make it completely invisible at all times, Harry said in tones of stating the obvious. 
You don't want there to be any detectable difference between a spy and a non-spy. Suppose you are more cunning still. You are a master of trickery, a master of deception, and you employ your abilities to the fullest. Well, the boy stopped, frowning. It seems unnecessarily complicated, more like a tactic a villain would use in a role-playing game than something you'd try in a real-life war. But I suppose you could put fake dark marks on people who aren't really Death Eaters, and keep the dark marks on the real Death Eaters invisible. But then there's the question of why people would start believing in the first place that the dark mark identified a Death Eater. I'd have to think about it for at least five minutes if I was going to take the problem seriously. I ask you this, because I did indeed, in the early days of the war, perform such tests as you suggested. The Order survived my folly only because Alistair did not trust in the bare arms we saw. I had thought afterwards that the bearers of the mark might hide it or show it at their will. And yet, when we hide Igor Karkaroff before the wizened gamut, that mark showed clearly on his arm for all that Karkaroff wished to protest his innocence. What true rule may govern the dark mark, I do not know. Even Severus is still bound by his mark, not to reveal its secrets to any who do not know them. Oh, well that makes it obvious. Wait, hold on. You were a Death Eater? Harry transferred his stare to Severus. Severus returned a thin smile. I still am, so far as they know. Harry, said Albus, eyes only for the boy. What do you mean that makes it obvious? Information Theory 101, the boy said in a lecturing tone. Observing variable X conveys information about variable Y if and only if the possible values of X have different probability given different states of Y. The instant you hear about anything whatsoever that varies between a spy and a non-spy, you should immediately think of exploiting it to distinguish spies from non-spies. Similarly, to distinguish reality from lies, you need a process which behaves differently in the presence of truth and falsehood. That's why faith doesn't work as a discriminant, while make experimental predictions and test them does. You say someone with the dark mark can't reveal its secrets to anyone who doesn't already know them. So to find out how the dark mark operates, write down every way you can imagine the dark mark might work. Then watch Professor Snape try to tell each of those things to a confederate, maybe one who doesn't know what the experiment is about. I'll explain binary search later so you can play 20 questions to narrow things down. And whatever he can't say out loud is true. His silence would be something that behaves differently in the presence of true statements about the mark versus false statements, you see. Minerva's mouth was hanging open, she'd realized, and she closed it abruptly. Even Albus looked surprised. And after that, like I said, any behavioral difference between spies and non-spies can be used to identify spies. Once you've identified at least one magically censored secret of the dark mark, you can test someone for the dark mark by seeing if they can reveal that secret to someone who doesn't already know it. Thank you, Mr. Potter. Everyone looked at Severus. 
The potions master was straightening, his teeth bared in a grimace of angry triumph. Headmaster, I can now speak freely of the mark. If we know we are caught for a Death Eater, before others who have not yet seen our bare arms, our mark reveals itself whether we will it or no. But if they have already seen our arms bare, it does not reveal itself, nor if we are only being tested from suspicion. Thus the dark mark seems to identify Death Eaters, but only those already found, you perceive? Ah, thank you, Severus. He closed his eyes briefly. That would indeed explain why Black escaped even Peter's notice. Ah well. And Harry's proposed test? The potions master shook his head. The Dark Lord was no fool, despite Potter's delusions. The moment such a test is suspected, the mark ceases to bind our tongues. Yet I could not hint at the possibility, but only wait for another to deduce it. Another thin smile. I would award you a good many house points, Mr. Potter, if it would not compromise my cover. But as you can see, the Dark Lord was quite cunning. His gaze grew more distant. Oh, he was very cunning indeed. Harry Potter sat still for a long moment. Then... No, the boy shook his head. No, that can't actually be true. First of all, we're talking about the kind of logic puzzle that would appear in Chapter 1 of a Raymond Smullyan book, nowhere near the level of what muggle scientists do for a living. And second, for all I know, it took the Dark Lord five months of thinking to invent the puzzle I just solved in five seconds. Is it that inconceivable to you, Potter, that anyone could be so intelligent as yourself? The Potions Master's voice held more curiosity than scorn. It's called a base rate, Professor Snape. The evidence is equally compatible with the Dark Lord inventing that puzzle over the course of five months or over the course of five seconds. But in any given population, there'll be many more people who can do it in five months than in five seconds. Harry pasted a hand against his forehead. Darn it, how can I explain this? I suppose, from your perspective, the Dark Lord came up with a clever puzzle and I cleverly solved it, and that makes us look equal. I remember your first day at potions class, the potions master said dryly. I think you have a ways still to go. Peace, Severus. Harry has already accomplished more than you know. Yet tell me, Harry, why do you believe the Dark Lord is less than you? Surely he is a damaged soul in many ways, but cunning for cunning... You are not yet ready to face him, I would judge, and I know the full tally of your deeds. End first part of chapter 86 For more on Bayes' theorem, which Harry used extensively in today's episode to draw his conclusions, see this chapter's production notes on the website, hpmorpodcast.com. Thank you to the following people. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. Severus Snape by Brian Jones. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Quibbler Headlines by Phil Fulu. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. 
If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the continuation of Chapter 86, Multiple Hypothesis Testing. 